0: Mark's Gospel, Chapter 2 this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, starting out our new year. While you're finding Mark Chapter 2, just a couple of reminders. Wednesday night, Bible study this Wednesday before we have to take the 18th off. Unfortunately, because of uh, activities here at Basha High School, we will not be able to have our midweek service on the 18th. But we'll come back strong on the 25th. So we are meeting this Wednesday, the 11th. I uh, hope you can come out. We're going to be talking about, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ really transform the reality of my life every day? Does, does it really make an everyday difference in my life that I know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Um, and we're going to be talking about that on Wednesday night. Then, uh, Woody wanted me to make an announcement to all the men here at the church that the men are having sort of a kickoff lunch for the year, the last Sunday of January, January the 29th, right after the service over in the cafeteria. Going to have a big barbecue uh, over there, right after church on January the 29th. So please go out, sign up, talk to Woody about it. I'd love to see 50-plus men out to that uh to that lunch on January the 29th. It's a great time for the men of the church to get together. And uh, I believe that, speaking of the men, I think the women are starting up their Thursday night Bible study this week as well. So uh, don't forget, gals, to avail yourself of, of that great time in the Word and fellowship with your sisters in Christ. So because of the holiday, and I know many of you are not, Here last Sunday to to join us, let me just take a few moments and quickly review uh, Mark chapter 1 last week. The purpose of Mark's gospel is to stimulate or arouse from us a lasting response in word and in deed to the true identity of Jesus Christ. And I especially want to zero in on that last phrase, the true identity of Jesus Christ, because that's what today's message is going to be about. You see, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus called people to follow him, not just to believe in him, but to follow him. So we talked last week about the fact Am I following Jesus? Am I really letting him lead the way of my life? Am I walking in the footsteps as he lays them down for me? It's a question every one of us must ask ourselves. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus. As we saw last week, the demons believe and know who Jesus is, but they're not willing to ever follow him. You see Jesus is calling us not just to believe, but to follow. And then the question from chapter 1 was, why am I following Jesus? Am I, like many people that we saw in chapter 1 of Mark, following him simply for what he can do for me? Or am I following him simply because of who he is? Nothing more, nothing less. Because we saw that if I follow Jesus for what he can do for me, then there's going to come a point where I will quit following Jesus. Because he won't always do what I think he should be doing. He, He won't always work in the way that I think he should. We see that with John the Baptist. If John the Baptist would have been following Jesus for what he could do for him, and not simply because of who he was, the Son of God then John would have not been faithful to Jesus up until the time he got his head lopped off and died as a martyr. Jesus is calling us to follow him. To follow him. Now, when we come to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2 reveals to us that Jesus says and does such audacious things that those around him are questioning, who does this guy think he is? And Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, is going to reveal to us who he is. The question is, will we embrace the true identity of Jesus Christ? We will learn in Mark chapter 2 this morning that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, that he is the healer, that he is the bridegroom, and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we're going to see how each of these identities, if you will, or revelations into who Jesus is, how this applies to our own life. So let's begin in Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. After some days, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, the news spread that he was at home. So many gathered there that was no longer any room even, not even by the door, and he preached the word to them. Sometimes we don't realize or remember that Jesus was a preacher. He, everywhere he went, he preached the word of God. In fact, last week in chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus replied, let's go elsewhere into the surrounding villages so that I can preach there too, for that is what I came here to do. Jesus, yes, he healed. Yes, he did miracles. But Jesus also preached the word of God because it is through the word of God that faith is birthed into a human life and that faith grows. Paul says this in Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So everywhere that Jesus went, he preached the word. Now, verse three, some people came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And when they were not able to bring him in because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. Then after tearing it out, they lowered the stretcher the paralytic was lying on. And notice verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Jesus could see their faith. Why? Because faith is not something that is simply internal. Faith is something that is expressed outwardly. It is active. It's possible for us to see people's faith. It's possible for God to see our faith. And so the question is, does God see my faith? Is God seeing my confidence and trust in him displayed every day? How about others? Do other people not only hear that I am a person of faith, because I can claim to be a person of faith. Yes, I believe. But do they see my faith? You see. And the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. There could be no sweeter words for any human being to hear than that. Your sins are forgiven. Let me ask you this morning. Have you ever heard Jesus say that to you? Has there ever been a time in your life where you knew God said to you because of the trust and faith and confidence and belief that you placed in Jesus Christ and who he was and his true identity and the sacrifice that he made for you that you know that God has said to you, your sins are forgiven? I hope so. It's the most important thing any human being could ever hear and have nailed down in their life. And even though this man came for physical healing, he got something more important. His soul was healed that day as well. And when the Bible says Jesus saw their faith, the friends of this man, it was because the faith that they were expressing by going through all that they went through... To bring this person to Jesus was they truly believed, and this is where their faith was demonstrated, that if we could just get him to Jesus, Jesus was the answer. Jesus would help. Jesus had the answer. Jesus was the answer. If I can just get my friend to Jesus, that's all I need. That we would have that same not only relationship with people around us but that same zeal to bring people to Jesus to make sure that they somehow some way either hear about Jesus or come in contact with Jesus like the friends of this paralytic now something else you'll notice in mark chapter 2 is that we're introduced to the sort of the leadership of Israel and you will notice that the leadership of Israel have a growing antagonism towards Jesus that begins here in this chapter. Whether we're referring to, as we do in verse 6, the experts in the law or the Pharisees or later on the Herodians who were Jewish leaders that were, that were loyal to Herod and to the Herodian dynasty. None of them liked Jesus because they saw him as a threat to their position and their power within the Jewish realm. So it says in verse 6, now some of the experts in the law were sitting there turning these things over in their minds. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming because they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And in essence, they were exactly right. The problem was not with, in a sense, their theology that, wait a minute, only God has the authority and power to forgive sins. The fact was where they were wrong is they didn't believe that Jesus was God. And Jesus was clearly revealing through this statement of sons, your sins are forgiven, that he wasn't just someone that could go around healing someone that he had the power and authority as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, to be able to forgive sins. Now the Bible says, Now immediately, verse 8, when Jesus realized in his spirit that they were contemplating such thoughts, he said to them. So notice something here. Again, Jesus is revealing that he's God because he actually knows the thoughts that these people are thinking, and they've never said anything. And think about it now when Jesus begins to question them based upon what they are thinking and nothing about what they've said. Can you imagine how that would unnerve most people? I didn't say anything and this guy knows what I'm thinking. Weird, unless he's God. And so he says, why are you thinking such things in your hearts? Now right there I'd be like, Oh my goodness, you must be God. But not these folks. And then he says in verse 9, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up, take your stretcher, and walk? Now notice something. Jesus doesn't say, What is easier? To do this or to do that? He doesn't say that. Notice he says, What is easier? To say this or to say that? Because the point that Jesus is making here is it's easy to say anything. Anybody can say anything. The proof, the proof is in the doing. And I don't just have the authority and power to say things. I have the authority and power because of who I am to do it. So that you then, verse 10, may know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Have no uncertainty that me, the son of man, again, that is a phrase that refers back to Daniel. And in Daniel, it is a picture of the Messiah, the one that would come, the very son of God. He says, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher and go home. You can't see that his sins are forgiven. But I will authenticate and confirm to you who I really am because I will physically heal this man. And his physical healing will be a confirmation and an authentication that I really am who I am claiming to be. I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher and go home. And immediately, the man stood up, took his stretcher and went out in front of them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this, I guess. Stuff like this just doesn't happen. And again, remember, the purpose of Mark's gospel is to evoke from us a lasting response, not a temporary, not an emotional, you know, Let's be all in with God and then later on have it fizzle out. No, a lasting response in word and in deed to the true identity of Jesus. And Mark is simply revealing to us who Jesus claimed to be, who he revealed himself to be. And it says, shouldn't we respond to this one unlike any other one because he is the son of man and he alone can forgive sins. Do you embrace that identity of Jesus Christ? Have you ever, ever heard him say to you in your spirit, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven? Because he alone has that authority and power. No one else. Then in verse 13, we see Jesus as the healer. Jesus went out again by the sea. The whole crowd came to him and he taught them always teaching the word of God. And he went along and he saw Levi or Matthew, as we know him by maybe more commonly, even though Matthew was sort of a nickname or a other name for Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now again, we don't really appreciate all of that's going on here because in that day, Jews who were tax collectors for the Roman government were despised pretty much above everyone else in their society for a couple reasons. Their own people looked at them as traitors because they were sort of working for the enemy as tax collectors. And second, almost all tax collectors always collected more than they really should have or needed to. They took a little bit extra. So they were just It was like, yuck, you know, ooh, tax collectors. And yet notice when Jesus comes by to Levi, this tax collector, once again, Jesus says in verse 14, follow me. Can you imagine? Again, you want me to follow you? You you want to associate with me, a tax collector? No wonder probably Levi got up and followed him. Maybe for the very first time someone actually cared enough about Levi to even have any kind of conversation with him. And to look deeper than his occupation and all of that, like Jesus can and Jesus did. And as Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, oh. That even takes it so much deeper because, again, in Jesus' day and in Jewish culture, to have a meal was more than just to sit down and physically consume food. It was an act of, of fellowship. It was koinonia. It was, it was connecting. It was binding people together. So the Jews looked at it more than just, hey, they're, they're eating together. And that's why Jesus has this response, again, from these leaders, as Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many at this point who followed him. And again, when the experts and the law in the law and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Ooh, doesn't he know that they're going to contaminate him? That they're going to defile him? That they make him less because of who he's hanging around? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here, Jesus is not just revealing himself as the Son of Man. He is revealing himself as the physician or the healer. And again, not just of someone's physical ailments, even though obviously Jesus can heal us of anything physically. But it's more about the healing of our soul and making us whole. And you will notice here in the words of Jesus, especially in verse 17. That those who have no need or who will not acknowledge a need in their life literally erect a barrier between themselves and Jesus. Because Jesus is basically saying, I will help you. I will heal you. I will make you whole if you are willing to acknowledge you have a need. I will never turn you away. The problem is, as Jesus sees it both in his day and throughout human history, is that many human beings will not humble themselves and lay aside their pride long enough for Jesus to come in and help them in any way because they will never admit that they have anything wrong. I I don't have any need. I got it all together. In fact, that's one of the sad things really to me about even as we go on in modern human history is that we have gotten to a place even in modern human history where we've so twisted sin... That it's not sin any longer, and I don't have to be responsible for it. We have, in, as human beings, basically absolved ourselves of all responsibility of our bad doings, if you will. And we say, it's, it's a disease that I can't you know, have any responsibility for. I, I was born with this. Uh, it, it's beyond me, but it's not my responsibility. Uh, I can point the fingers at everyone else around me, but I don't have to take any responsibility for it myself. That's where we've gotten to. And here's God up here, Jesus, who says, I can heal you. I can make you whole. I can forgive you. But you've got to be willing to say, I'm responsible. It's on me. I have a need. It's my fault. I'm wrong. And when you and I do that before God, then God is so much willing to flood into our life and say, okay, now let's, let's do this. Let's work with this. I can work with that, God says. And the lights went out. <laughs> By the way, Bashir still has not, obviously, come in and fixed the problem that we had a couple weeks ago. I'm hoping that this week, they start school back up tomorrow here. We're, we're hoping that, once school starts back up, they'll tend to that little detail. <clears throat> Jesus here in verse 17 of Mark chapter 2 is presenting himself as the healer. And that concept goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I want to read you a verse way back in the book of Exodus. Exodus. where God says, If you will diligently obey the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and pay attention to His commandments and keep all His statutes, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians I will not bring on you, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Exodus fifteen twenty six. God even said, look... Much of the disease and illness and stuff that the Egyptians are suffering from is because they will not obey me. They will not listen to me. It's because of their sin and disobedience. Now again, we don't buy that for the most part in our modern society. But that's what God's word says. And God said, if you will listen to me, if you will obey me, if you will follow me, then all those diseases that you see the Egyptians suffering from I won't bring those on you because I will be your healer. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Are we willing to acknowledge our need before Jesus and let him heal us? And bring wholeness to our life. Whether that is physical, emotional, or most importantly, spiritual. Because sometimes, if not most of the time, the greatest need in our lives as human beings is below the surface. It's what others cannot see where our greatest need is. And God knows that. And that's why God wants to deal with our soul more than anything else. Then look at verse 18. We see Jesus as the bridegroom. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And fasting was more associated with mourning and and grieving than it was just an exercise of spiritual discipline like many Christians do today. So it, it was sort of not something that was ever associated with something good. It was more associated with something bad or going through some kind of pain or suffering in our lives. So they said, why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, well, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? I'm the bridegroom. I've come to prepare my bride, the church. And just like in Jesus' day and just like today, weddings are usually happy times, times of celebration, times of joy. And so he's saying, if the bridegroom is with us, then it's not a time for fasting and to be discouraged and down. It's a a time of joy and celebration. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they do not fast. Now he does predict here in verse 20, the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them, literally and physically. And at that time, yeah, they'll fast. But Jesus presents himself as the bridegroom. Why? Why is Jesus looked at as the bridegroom and revealed as the bridegroom throughout the New Testament? As his church is the bride and he's the bridegroom. Well, one reason is because different than today. In Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, instead of the bride being sort of the center and focus of attention at the wedding, the bridegroom was. The bridegroom was the person of of honor at the wedding, not the bride. And the bridegroom-bride symbolism here is to teach God's people that Jesus, as our bridegroom, wants to come into our lives and be as close to us as a bride and bridegroom are, a husband and wife. That he wants to have that kind of intimate, close connection with us. And that as he does this, just like a bridegroom did in Jesus' day to his bride, he would also bring provision and protection and security and stability and joy. And it was something to celebrate. Is Jesus your bridegroom today? And then because wine, I think, is so much associated even in the New Testament with weddings and celebrations and whatnot, Jesus picks up on this and then begins to teach in verse 21 this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and the tear becomes worse. And by the way, the word for garment there was a word that was used throughout the Old Testament speaking of a covering of sin which I think is significant in this context as well. And then he says, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst to skins. Both the wine and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. And Jesus is simply saying, I didn't come here to put a band-aid on the problem. I came to really fix the problem and get to the root of the problem. I didn't come here to try to patch up Judaism. I came to bring something superior and something new and something unprecedented. I came to bring new wine into your life. A wine, again, that will bring joy and provision and protection and security and stability. For I am your bridegroom. Do you embrace my true identity? I am the son of man who alone has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I am the healer, the one that all you have to do, all I have to do is acknowledge my need and he will heal and bring wholeness to my life. And I am the bridegroom. I'm one who doesn't want to come into your life and have this distant relationship. I want to come into your life and be as close and intimate to you as possible. I want you to know that you have a companion that will walk with you every step of your life and will be as close as we can possibly be. In fact, that's why Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. It's not just a matter of being with us. It's a matter of God being in us. That's how close God wants to be. And it is out of that closeness and that fellowship that we can have with our bridegroom every day that we can experience his joy and his provision and his protection and his security and his stability so that we don't have to go through life filled with anxiety and angst and being troubled. And then finally, Jesus teaches them that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 23, Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath. And his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way. So again, these religious leaders said to him, Look, why are, your, why are they doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions were hungry? how he entered the house of God when Abathar was high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to its companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. For this reason, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to take the time to go into a whole teaching this morning, On the Sabbath, that's not what the message today is to be about. But let me quickly say this. What Jesus is clearly teaching is that whatever reason, purpose, or intention God had for giving man the Sabbath, they had messed it up royally by this point. Because Jesus is clearly saying, look... When God gave you the Sabbath, he gave it to bless you, not to burden you. He gave it to you so that it would be a blessing in your life, not something that somehow would cause your life, again, all this, you know, trouble and, and, and heartache and, you know, this and that. And, and he said, you're totally missing the reason why it was given in the first place. Because at this point, by the time Jesus came on the scene, they had added all these extra rules and regulations to the Sabbath. And they had made it way more complicated and way more difficult and way more burdensome than God ever meant it to be. All God meant it to be, first of all, was an acknowledgement that he was, first of all, creator because remember the context of why made the sabbath in the first place it was a pattern that god made the universe in six days and on the seventh day he rested and again god didn't have to rest because he was physically he was tired god never never gets tired it was to be an example and pattern for man that man when he came on the earth was not to ceaselessly labor day in and day out without taking a break that man was to always build into their schedule times of rest So it was an acknowledgement, first of all, of the sovereignty and creatorship of God, and then it was also a reminder that we need to rest and that we need to set aside time just to focus on God. Not that we shouldn't be focused on God all the time, but that there should be time in our week where we say, God, this is your time alone. That's what the Sabbath was all about. Anything more than that Jesus is saying, now you, you have taken what God meant to be a blessing and benefit. And now you've made it this burdensome thing where now people can't eat on the Sabbath because they're working somehow and they can't. Come on, guys. He said, when God made the Sabbath, he made it for people, not people for the Sabbath. And this whole story reminds me of several years ago. There was a story of there. There was a. a lecture being given on a college campus about this particular chapter in a book. And the guy who was doing the lecture was trying to explain to this large classroom what the author intended to mean in this chapter. There go the lights again. And the lecture was interrupted by a man sitting in the back and he was sort of taking issue with where this man landed with... His interpretation or meaning of the chapter, and then the lecture started to take issue with the guy that was questioning him says, "Well, who are you to tell me what this chapter means?" And the guy simply says, "Well, because I'm the author. I wrote it. I, I should know what, it, what I meant. And see that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, "I am Lord of the Sabbath." I'm the one that authored it. I'm the one that created it. I should know what its purpose and intent is. And so Jesus is saying a lot here about that because we could apply this whole principle to many other things other than just the Sabbath. Jesus saying, God gave his word to man and gave instructions about a lot of different things. But then man over time and history comes in and adds and takes away what it, and, and basically imposes his own thoughts and his own will and his own wants on what God has said and somehow it gets to a place where what it looks like now looks nothing like God intended for it to look like in the first place. And can I say that's part of the problem of the local church today? There are many people like I. The local church doesn't do anything for me anymore. The, the local church, you know, just lacks today. Well, part of the problem, if not the biggest problem of why that is, is because the local church today, for the most part, isn't functioning the way God intended it to function. It's functioning the way man wants it to function. Man has come in and just like they did with the Sabbath, they have imposed their own rules and regulations and their own wants and their own will into how the church should operate. And it looks very little like God intended for it to all along. And just like Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he's also Lord of the church. In fact, he is Lord of everything. Do we embrace that identity of Jesus Christ? Do we let him define things the way he wants to define them and the way they really are? Or do we come in and basically make things, even that God has talked about, the way we want them to be? And I love what Jesus did then at the beginning of chapter 3. Because Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Because again, for them, that was a no-no. Now, God never said that, but that's where it got to. We can't do any, any work on the Sabbath and healing for them was a work. Even though it was a really good thing. That's how bad they messed up what God intended. So he said to the man who had the withered hand, stand up among all these people. And then Jesus said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? To save a life or destroy it? And notice, they were silent. And I want you to, I want you to really focus on this next verse, verse 5 of Mark chapter 3. This is a key verse. The Bible says after looking around at them for a proper response. Can you put yourself in that room, in that synagogue on the Sabbath day? You can literally see Jesus. He's looking around. And as he looks, he's looking for a proper response. Will people embrace what I'm doing here and who I am? But notice as he looked around what he saw. And he was angry. Why? Because he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He could see into them. And as God, he could see that their heart was hard. And it would not embrace. It would not receive the revelation of who he was. The son of man. The healer, the bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath. Did that cause Jesus to back down? (laughs) Not at all. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and he healed him. And his hand was restored. But then notice what happened in verse six. The Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians as to how they could assassinate him. That was their response. We need to destroy this man. We need to kill him. We need to get rid of him. Because we don't accept nor do we like who he is. Many at this point followed, but not everyone did. Many rejected Jesus and even did it violently. If there's a key verse from today's passage, I believe it's verse 17 of Mark chapter 2, where Jesus said, Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Remember, those of us who are not willing to acknowledge a need in our life literally erect a barrier between us and Jesus. All we have to do is acknowledge need and Jesus will never be repulsed by no matter what it is. And he is willing to come in and heal and make us whole. And forgive. But what he's looking for is are we willing to humble ourselves and say, God, I need you. And you are the one that I need. Because you alone are the son of man. You alone are my healer. You alone are my bridegroom. You alone are the Lord of not only the Sabbath, but of everything. Lord, I believe in your true identity. And I want you to come in and heal me and make me whole today. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I pray today that just as Mark's intent and Mark's purpose for writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was to draw people to a lasting response in word and deed to the true identity of Jesus Christ. That we would clearly know who Jesus is, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the bridegroom, that he is the healer, the great physician, and that he is the son of man who alone has the authority on earth to forgive sin. God, I pray today that we would not be like those people that as Jesus looked around that room and looked into people's hearts that he was angry and grieved because of the hardness of their heart. But that he would he look around here today at the oasis and that he would see hearts that might be tender and broken. Ready to acknowledge need. Ready to say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness, God. I need your healing and wholeness. I need your security and stability and joy and peace. I need the rest that you alone can bring as Lord of the Sabbath in my life. God, I look to you. I look to you, God, and no one else. So, God, I pray that during this time, God, that all of us might realign our soul with you. That we might take this moment and settle things in our soul. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.